Genesis chapter six. Have you ever read an epic novel? Like a really large epic tale, like War and Peace or The Brothers Karamazov, or maybe like more like an epic uh, series, like a trilogy, like The Lord of the Rings. Maybe that's more our, our flavor here. And you notice when you go through a giant story like that, that it's broken down into multiple different parts, right? Lord of the Rings, you've got three separate books. And within those books, you have chapters, but there's also an additional separation that you see in most large epic tales and it's, um, it's parts. Like part one of book one, and then you have a series of chapters, and then you'll move on to part two of that same book, and you'll continue in the chapters. And it's, it, they're related to the previous chapters, but you're kind of starting a new thing. Same book, moving along in the chapters, new part. That's what Genesis 6 is. It's really part two of book one of the story of God's relationship with humanity. It's where we get introduced to Noah, probably the most famous Sunday school Bible character in the entire Bible. And as we jump into this part two, I think it's really interesting to see how similar and yet different it is to the beginning of part one, creation and the tale of Adam. Because here's how part one starts out. God in creation says, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. And then you get Genesis 3, 1, and it says, but the serpent. And then as you go through Genesis 3, we see this interaction that Adam and Eve have with the serpent and their failures in their decisions and the way that that has set a trajectory for their family that's bad. And it heads in a very bad direction, culminating in where we are now in chapter six. But chapter six starts out like this. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And I think that's really interesting for us to look at because some of us grew up in Eden households. I'm one of them. I grew up in a household, my parents are still married, we went to church, it's wonderful and I've had all of these advantages in life but my decisions will still set the trajectory for my family and I can like Adam, choose wrongly and head in a different direction. But maybe that wasn't your story. Maybe you're more like growing up in the time of Noah and it's bad and it's bad and it's bad and it's bad. And your parents were bad photocopies of bad photocopies of bad photocopies, or you didn't have a dad, or you haven't seen how this thing walked out correctly. And you're looking at your kids saying, I don't want them to have the kind of childhood I have. The story of Noah is so encouraging for us there. Because while Noah, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. It says Noah walked with God and he changes the trajectory for his entire family. So here's what I know. I grew up in this Eden type situation because of the Noahs in the generation before me. Because my parents came out of brokenness and they made some very good decisions that have set me up and I'm so thankful for them. 
And I challenge each of us to look at our kids and look at the legacy we're gonna leave behind, whether we're coming from good, 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 or bad, bad, bad. If we like Noah walk with God, we can change this direct trajectory for our family. And as we head through the story of Noah over the next few weeks, just pay attention, learn from Noah. He's got some failings, no doubt. We'll get to the end of this. There's some mistakes, but there's so much to learn from a man who had nothing but disadvantages and yet chose to walk with God and change the trajectory of his entire family. So cool. So let's jump into it. It says, Genesis 6, verse one, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. What? one of the craziest stories in the entire Old Testament. And it is highly debated what all of this is saying. So if you'd like to know, email Matt, and we're just gonna move on with. (laughs) No, let me at least give you a few of the different thought processes, ways that people try to interpret this, what they think it is, and then I'll tell you what the right answer is. So. I'll settle the debate for you tonight, it's great. So option number one, who are these sons of gods? Well, one theory is that they are aliens. It's a little fringe, I know. I haven't met one of those people yet, I'd like to. I'm gonna invite them over for dinner. We won't even need Netflix that night, it's gonna be great, we'll be entertained. They're aliens, okay, all right, little fringe. The next is that what we're talking about here with the sons of God and the daughters of men is an intermarriage between the sinful line of Cain and the godly line of Seth. Then why didn't it just say that? I don't know, but that's a theory. Another one is that what they're talking about here is these really powerful kings these kings who've begun to amass for themselves harems and that they're taking advantage of these women and the Lord says, that's evil, it has to stop. They're powerful kings and their offspring are princes, mighty men of renown. And then the final theory, the one I believe is accurate, is that when it says the sons of God, it's talking about fallen angels. And it's talking about fallen angels having some sort of sexual relationship with human women and creating these offspring that are neither angel or human, but some sort of hybrid. So why do I think that that's the truth? Well, I'll give you a few reasons. Reason number one is because of the Bible, because of what it says and how it uses these words. The words here for sons of God is benai a Elohim. I butchered that, I know, that's fine. I don't know Hebrew, but it's used a few other times in the Bible. It's used in Job chapter one, verse six, 
Job chapter two, verse one, and Job chapter 38, verse seven. And every other time that it's used, it's translated angels. And there's very little debate about the other translations. A few people might debate on the first couple in Job, but pretty much everyone agrees. Job 38, this word here, benai a Elohim, it's angels. And then there's also this weird little enigmatic passage in Jude that alludes to this as well. I'll read it for you. It's Jude 6 and 7. Jude has only one chapter, so you don't have any other reference. It's just verse 6 and verse 7. It says this, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. Another couple crazy verses. But it seems here that there was some sort of angelic thing happening where these angels were not staying in their proper place. Something sexual was happening whenever the Bible references Sodom and Gomorrah, it's talking about sexual sin of some nature. Something happened here that's not happening anymore because it says that God has put them in chains until their proper time. So that's reason number one, because of the Bible. Reason number two is just because of cultural history. So as we go through the story of the flood, what you'll find out is there's over 300 different cultures that have a flood story in their narrative of history. And if you look at all those cultures, it's amazing how many of them also have this whole half God, half man, something happening that's strange and perverted and creates something different. The Greeks have it. I mean, it's, it's intertwined in the Greek mythology. You have Hercules, he's a half man, half God. You have these giants in the Greek mythology, but it's in Egyptian mythology too. And there's, there's paintings that we found, not we, I wasn't there. Um, I would have liked to have been in the pyramids where they're showing pictures of this, of something coming from heaven and, and there's thing happening with and creating something new. It's in Hindu mythology. It's in Norse mythology, right? So Thor is not just a Marvel character. He's a character in their mythology and that, that is what he is. It's in Mayan and Aztec mythology, Japanese, Chinese, African and Native American. Over and over and over again, we see this in people's history that they say something happened. Something strange happened and it created these offspring who were different because we believe that Noah and his three sons and his daughters-in-law, those eight people were the only ones left after the flood. And if they experienced this, they told their kids and their kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids. And what do kids love? Stories about giants. So they pass them on and they come down to us. All right, so we've got the Bible that really kind of points to this. We've got, we've got the cultural histories but we've also got the Septuagint, the very first commentary really, if you were on the Bible. So when Jesus is teaching and reading from the Bible, he's not reading Hebrew in his time, he's reading a Greek translation of the Hebrew. It's the Septuagint, it's what the ancient Jews, when they translated this Hebrew into Greek, that's what they believed the words really said. And they translate this as angels and giants. 
angels, and giants. And then finally, we have church history. For thousands of years of church history, this was the predominant thought. It's only up to a couple hundred years ago with the Enlightenment that people started coming up with all the other ideas. Before that, it was predominantly just taken at face value and believed this is fallen angels and women creating some sort of a hybrid. So why do we have so many different theories and ideas on it now? Because it makes us uncomfortable. And so often what we do as a culture, as a society, and what I can easily do in my life is when I come across a passage in the Bible that makes me uncomfortable, I try to water it down or dilute it. Be like, well, what that, that's, that's kind of cultural, don't you know? Or what that really means is. And so often what I really need to do is just take the Bible at face value, what it says, right? When it says spare the rod and spoil the child, it means spare the rod, spoil the child, right? That's what it means. Well, we know so much more now culturally and you can't crush a little child. Listen, I've spanked every one of my children and they all, I've, I haven't crushed a single spirit, right? But they know what no means. Spare the rod, spoil the child. Homosexuality is a sin. It says it over and over again in the Bible. Well, when they're not talking about committed, that's what it says. So often I just need to take the Bible for what it says. Husbands, die to yourself and love your wife. Oh, well, you know, what if she, no, that's what it says. Wives, submit to your husbands. That's very cultural and you have, no, that's what it says. Do you know what it never says though? Husband, make your wife submit. It's not in there. Not once. Just as wives. This is a challenge to wives. Husband, you got your own thing to deal with. And we do. I think so often. Now, it's, it is important to understand who something is being written to and the cultural context. All of that is huge when you're studying through the word. But whenever you listen or read a commentary and the first thing out of their mouth is, well, what that really means is, be careful, antennas should go up. What that really means is you're scared to tell me what that really means because you think you might offend me because the Bible's offensive and it should be because it's truth and it's righteous and I am not. And when it says something righteous and it offends me, it's because I'm wrong and it's correct. Amen? Okay. Or maybe it's aliens. I don't know. It's, it's... So then, why is this story in here? Why is this weird little story about half gods and half man and fallen angels, why is this important to our original audience, which is a bunch of mud brick baking slaves coming out of Egypt? Because they're scared of giants. They're scared of giants. They're on a 40 year death march right now because they're scared of giants. You remember the story, they come out of Egypt, they get to the promised land, the spies go in, 10 of them come back, they're like, there's giants. There's no way we can go take the land. And what I really believe God is telling his children right here is listen, that thing you're afraid of, I know all about it. 
I know its history. I know its origins. I've already dealt it a death blow. By the time the Israelites are dealing with this, it's probably just intern genes that are still coming down through and we're not necessarily having this, this weird intercourse anymore. What God is saying to his children right there is, listen, that thing you're terrified of him, I understand it. I understand all about it and I've dealt it a death blow. You don't need to be scared of it anymore. And I think Jesus would say that to each and every single one of us today. What are you afraid of? What keeps you up at night? What makes you, takes your breath away, gives you chills? What are you afraid of? Jesus knows all about it. He knows the origin of that fear. He knows where it came from. He knows the sin behind it. And on the cross, he dealt it a death blow. And we're just, we're just watching its death throes right now. And I think so often I need to come back to this and be like, whatever I'm afraid of, my father knows. My father knows. And since he knows, he's the one who can help me walk through it. Because what do we see with the three men who react correctly to giants? Yes, I said, I said three. You've got Joshua, you've got Caleb, and then you've got David. Another story where all of Israel, who apparently doesn't read their own history, is freaked out about a giant. What do all three of these men say? And if God is with me, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big they are. That's what God's saying right now to his children, to us, I believe. Listen, I know where they're from. I know what happened. I already dealt it a death blow. Don't worry about it. Just walk with me. I got this, right? Okay. So then it says, verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart so that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Jump down to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. It's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. That's what this is telling us. And it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. But the key verse in this section to me is this. It's verse 11. It says, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. Who gets to decide what's corrupt? God. Do you think the Nephilim thought it was corrupt? No, they were partying. This is great. Do you think some of the other people thought it was corrupt? No. No, because they don't repent. God is the one who gets to decide what is good and what is evil. And Genesis tells us that over and over and over again. We learned it in chapter three with the tree. We see it here again in chapter six. God says, I'm the only one who can 
judge. So why should we let God be judge? Why does God get to be judge? Because he's the creator. But look what else this, thing, this, this little section tells us. It says, the Lord saw, verse five. God gets to be judged because he's creator. He also gets to be judged because he sees. He sees everything. And so often when I decide it's time for me to be judge, it's because I don't see. I don't know what that person went through. I don't know the day that that person had. I don't know their past. Now, they're responsible for their own sin. I get it. But God sees it all. And sometimes I want to be judge and I do not see well. I'm blind by my own prejudices, my own feelings, my own thoughts. God is the only one who gets to be judge because he's the only one who sees, but he's also ultimately the one who cares the most. That's the other reason he gets to be judge. It's because he cares. Look what it says. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Now, a lot of people struggle with this verse because they see that word regretted and they think that God was like, oh no, right? Like God, the father sitting up there one day and he's looking down and he's like, dude, this is not good. Holy Spirit, Jesus, get in here. Which one of you came up with free will? That was dumb. You're fired, I'm flooding the earth. No, no, it's, it's, it's like a father who sees his child in pain and they regret it. And then it says that it grieved him. And the word that the Bible uses there for grieved is so interesting because one of the other places in the Old Testament that it uses that is to describe a young woman whose spouse has abandoned them. Whose spouse, it's, it, psychologists say that's one of the worst pains imaginable. That's one of the worst pains you can have. It's even worse than a death of a spouse because they're still out there. Jesus says, listen, when you sin, I feel like you've abandoned me. I am grieved and I'm going to deal with it. I'm grieved because you've broken my love. That's really the thing. God doesn't grieve because the Bible tells us even these days, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, right? It says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so often I think, I've always thought about it like this, like, oh, I grieved the Holy Spirit because I broke God's rules. God's upset because I broke his rules. No, God's upset because I betrayed his love. It's like a difference between an employee and a child, right? I call an employee in, I'm like, go do this. And they say, no. I'm like, you've grieved me because you broke my rules because you're my employee. But you call your son or your daughter in and you tell them, hey, sweetie, listen, I want you to, to study tonight and I want you to get a good night rest because you've got that test tomorrow. And they just rebel against you. Something in your heart breaks a little bit because you're like, don't you know I'm only telling you this because I love you? I wouldn't tell you this just to make you do it. I'm telling you, well, sometimes because I need a night off. Um, 
because I love you. And if I'm grumpy, you will, it won't go well for you. So, so much of what we see from the father is that, listen, I'm telling you these things because I love you. And when you're like, no, I don't want to, what you're basically saying is clearly you don't love me because you're telling me to do something that's bad. And it grieves God. That's why he gets to be judge. He gets to be judge because he created, because he sees, and because he cares. This is how much God cares. He let his body be broken to save the people who broke his heart. Me. He said, you broke my heart because you rebelled against me, but I'll let my body be broken to redeem you. He cares that much. That's why he gets to be judge. Is he your judge? Do you let God be judge in your life and in this world all the time? Because I don't. I try to, I want to, but there's times where I just think that is something I have to deal with. That's something that, and there will be times to partner with God, but so often I feel like I need to judge. I need to be the one to judge what's right, what's wrong, when things should be dealt with now, right? And that's not good because I am a bad judge because I'm not patient, right? Because what does God say about himself when it comes to judging? It's in Exodus 34. Here's what he says about his judgments says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What does he say about his judgment? He's so patient. He's so, so patient. In fact, this chapter has already talked about that. In the previous section, he said this, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days will be 120 years. From the time that was written until the ark was about 120 years. It could also mean the amount of time in man's life, because after this life is shorter, it's about 120 years. But what that's alluding to and what God's saying here again is, listen, I'm so patient. The world is so evil. And I gave him 120 years while Noah was building the ark to repent. And I called them to repentance. The New Testament tells us that Noah preached repentance. And Noah had an audience. I guarantee it, right? Because <clears throat> he was building a giant boat in the middle of the desert. So, I don't know, 15 years ago, I went on a missions trip to India with a bunch of high school kids. And we were all, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna preach the Bible, I'm gonna share, I'm gonna do all this kind of stuff. And you get there and you realize, I'm not here for any of that because I can't speak Hindi, translators are not good. Here's what they brought us down there for. The mission team down there, brilliant. Billy Graham, Palouse, his brother, they would bring these teams in and they'd identify these villages way out in the middle of nowhere. And they'd show up with a bunch of white people and these villages had, some of, the, some of the younger people in these villages had never seen white people. 
And so all the village would come out like, what in the world are these things? Right? And I remember having some kids like follow me when I went to the bushes to go to the bathroom because they're like, I want to know if all of you is white. You know? <laughs> this is awkward. <clears throat> so all the village would come out and then Billy would preach to them and they'd get saved. I was the sideshow. And it was incredibly effective. I think God used the ark in the same way. He used it to save Noah and his family, no doubt, but I think he also used it to draw the people in. I'm gonna give them an opportunity. I'm gonna give them a chance. I'm gonna build a giant billboard for them to come and say, what's going on so that I can preach to them. I can have my servant Noah tell them the truth so that they may have a chance to repent. Did any of them? No. Did God know none of them would repent? Probably. Did he still give them 120 years? Yeah. Would I have? No. That's why I don't get to be judge. He is so unbelievably patient. But then he judges, doesn't he? Do you know the Bible says, Jesus actually says that the end times will be like the days of Noah. I think we're living in that 120 years right now maybe about 119 years and six months in. <laughs> but judgment's coming. God will judge evil and sin. And that makes me so happy and terrified at the same moment. Not terrified for me. I'm secure. I know what Jesus did for me. I know where I'm going. I know where I'm spending eternity. If you don't, don't leave here tonight. Talk to someone, judgment's coming. But what it terrifies me for is the people I haven't shared with, I haven't talked to, I haven't prayed for, the family members I haven't wanted to have that awkward conversation with, because I think there's probably still time. I don't know if there is. And I need to have those conversations because... The 120 years, it's probably just about up. It's probably just about up. And then God is going to judge. He's going to judge evil. And I'm so glad. But then when God looks out, I think it's interesting. God as judge, he looks at this world. He says, it's bad, it's bad, it's bad. But what does he call out as bad? He says this, he says, that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And then when you skip down, it says, and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted and it was filled with violence. He sees evil thoughts, crooked hearts, corruption, which is really bad motives, and then evil actions, violence. But what's the first thing he calls out? The thoughts. I saw their evil thoughts. Growing up in church, I can't tell you how many times I sat through a sermon where the pastor would sit up here and say, so good you don't know what I'm thinking and only God does because you'd all run out of here screaming. You ever heard that? Like, man, if you could see what's going on in my head, it would terrify you. Which is partially true, but I think it does us a disservice. 
Because I always grew up in church thinking, okay, we got to deal with the violence first, the actions. And then if I get that down, I can deal with the motivations. If I get that down, I can work on the heart. But then like fourth degree black belt Christianity is when you start trying to deal with your thoughts, right? Like those are for super saints. I think God addresses that first when he says, listen, their thoughts were evil. What does Paul say? Second Corinthians 10, he says this, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Listen to that verse for a second again in the context of our culture wars. We, Edgewater, destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I think we need to spend a lot more time working on what we're thinking about. I think I need to spend a lot more time working on what I'm thinking about. My thoughts are directly tried with my heart which leads to my motivations and my actions. But so often I spend all my time working on actions and really what I need to do is concentrate on my thoughts. What am I thinking about? What am I dwelling on? What am I putting in? Because that's what's gonna be mulling around. Is it Netflix and clickbait and the things that are stressing me out and the things that I'm afraid of? Or is it Philippians 4.8? Brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Am I thinking about that? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, or am I thinking about what's funny, what's entertaining, what's on my to-do list. I need to spend a lot more time thinking about my thoughts because God says, if they're evil continually, everything else goes downhill. And I've always read that verse of Philippians 4, 8, and I've thought, sweet, that's talking about like the things we watch, the things we read, maybe objects, and it is. But Philippians is the book of relationship. And I think it'd be really interesting to take that same list and apply it to relationship. And here's what I mean. What if I purposed in my heart and in my mind and asked God for help, say, listen, when it comes to my spouse, I'm only going to think about what is true, which means I probably can't use superlatives anymore. He never, she always, they won't. Is that true? Really? Do they never, do they always? Then don't think about that. Think about what is true. What if I pick my spouse and I'm like, I'm gonna think about what is honorable. What is the most honorable thing about my spouse? I'm gonna think about that today. I'm gonna think about whatever is just in her or him, whatever is pure and lovely and commendable. What if we took this list and applied it to relationships? Spouse, coworker, boss, K 
kids, parent, sibling. Because so often what we do is we think about people throughout our day and we make a list of all the things that they're doing that bother us, don't we? I've got this list of everything. When she does that and when they do this and when they do that, and I've got all these lists on all these people and I'm constantly carrying around these lists of things that they've wronged me or ways that they bother me. Eventually, I have so many lists, I need like a suitcase to put it in. That's called baggage, right? When people have baggage, it's because they're carrying around cases full of lists of everything they don't like about people who've hurt them. That's baggage. And you can let it all go. And we can look at our spouse. We can look at our kids. We can look at our neighbor. Okay, what's really true? What's really honorable about that person? What's really just? What's really pure? What is really lovely? What is commendable? What is excellent? What is worthy of praise? I'm gonna think about those things. How would that change our relationships? Because what's the ultimate accusation against the people in Genesis 6? They're violent. Violence is about relationships. Horrible, bad relationships. A relationship can't go any further south than when it gets violent. What if the thoughts of our heart were like this? Really been challenging to me this week. Think about people, especially people that I have a little strife with. Okay, what's true? What's lovely? What's praiseworthy? I'm gonna think about those things, right? So God says he's going to judge. And then we finally get to verse eight. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah found favor. Very easily, you could change that word to grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of God. And I think so often, when I look at Noah's life, here's what I see. I see a man who found grace. I see a man who was righteous. I see a man who was blameless. I see a man who walked with God. I see a man who was faithful in the task that he was given him. And I think, okay, I've got to be all those things. And I kind of get them in this order. Like, okay, you work on the task, but there is an order to this. And I think when we get the order wrong, we start to fail. And the key here, the key phrase here is Noah walked with God. And the reason that phrase is key is because we just heard it last chapter. Enoch walked with God and he was not. Whenever you see something like that repeated, it's a theme. The Bible's telling you, pay attention to this. Noah spent time with the Lord. And because of that, he found grace. And because he found grace, he was righteous and blameless. It's not that he was righteous and blameless. And then God was like, ooh, that's a class A stud right there. I can rebuild the world with that dude. I don't think that's how it works. I know that's not how it works in my life. 
I'm, I, I fail at righteousness and blamelessness when I am trying to earn favor. And I only succeed when I'm spending time with my father and just marinating in his grace. Walk with God. The Bible says over and over again that we need to be spending time with our father. We need to be pressing into this relationship. That's what Noah did. He walked with God and he found grace. Have you found grace? Have you found the bottom of the deep end that is grace? No, you haven't. That's so cool. You can dive and dive and dive and dive into grace and you'll never reach the bottom of it. It's so beautiful. It's so wonderful. It is true and honorable and just and pure. When's the last time you spend a day being like, you know what today, when my mind wanders, I'm just gonna think about God's grace. I'm just gonna think about his grace today and how amazing it is and how wonderful it is that he loved me even when I wasn't righteous or blameless. Have you found grace? Keep diving in. Keep swimming into the deep end that is grace. You'll never find the bottom, but you'll find righteousness and blamelessness. And then once we see that Noah has found grace, once we see that he's got his life in order, that he's found righteousness and blamelessness as he walks with God, then he receives a task. So often I feel like, especially back in high school, when I used to work with high school, people would be like, what's the calling on my life? Find grace, be righteous and blameless. I know, but what's the calling on? Find grace, be righteous and blameless. Then you'll probably be ready for the task. If that's what Noah is, because then he gets the task and here's what God says. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them from the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it the length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them all alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kind and of the animals according to their kind of every creeping thing of the ground and according to its kind, two of every short sort shall come to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And then incredibly key verse Noah did this, he did all that God commanded him. I spent time with God. I found grace. It helped me to be righteous and blameless. And then God laid out a task for me. That's the Christian walk. What? 
That's the Christian walk. That's how we travel this thing out. Let's get to our task and let's be righteous and blameless as we walk it out. It's such a cool thing. And then Noah is faithful. This takes him a hundred years to do. But the one thing I find really interesting, and this is just a, a practical takeaway for me personally in my life, because I've seen both types. Noah's actually given two tasks here. Build an ark, gather two of every animal. One of those tasks is really laid out in details. Here's how the ark's supposed to be. You cover it inside out with pitch. These are the dimensions. Here's how many floors. You need a roof, you need a window. Oh, and by the way, get two of every kind of animal on the earth. Which task sounds harder? The animals. Which task came with more instructions? The ark. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> Here's what I find in my own life. Sometimes God gives me incredibly specific tasks that are really laid out. And when he does, I do them exactly how I should do them, exactly how he's asked me to. And sometimes he gives me tasks that are very vague. And I kind of get to do them the way I want. I don't know if Noah invented the lasso. I don't know what he did. Just go get the animals. Okay. Every task the Lord will assign you in life as you walk through it is different. Everyone's important. Everyone's different. Some take a long time. Some are like being a parent where you walk that thing out for years and years on end. Some are, hey, go say hi to that person who sat next to you. Some are really specific. Talk to the person in the red hat. Some are really vague. Say hi to someone at church today. Be kind to your neighbor. Which neighbor? I don't know, all of them. God lays out these tasks and Noah is faithful. And then verse 22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Unbelievably important verse, and we will hit it next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you that even though things may be bad, 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 that if like Noah, we walk with you, we find your grace. It helps us to walk righteously and in blamelessness. We can set a new trajectory for our family, our community, our city. I pray that we would be faithful servants like Noah, walking out the tasks you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.